I want to invite you to Psalm 119. Somewhere in the middle of the Bible, you'll find it. Uh, you'll, you'll make your way to the largest of the Psalms. We're going to read the first 40 verses of this Psalm. And if you want to, even if you're way ahead of the schedule, you can mark a spot in John chapter 1, which is where we will land for the end of our time together. So join me in Psalm 119, and let me chart a course for us for the next three weeks. We just wrapped up our time as a church walking through the good news of Mark. That is the entire 16 chapters of Mark. We started at the beginning of the year and we wrapped up this last week as is our typical custom. We want to think expositionally and exegetically. Those are nice words to think of. We want the text to simply tell us who, what to think. We want the Bible to tell us where to go as opposed to us looking into the Bible and making it tell us what we simply want to hear. And so that is typically our custom. But we always love to, I think, set aside some time, especially in the summer, to, I hope, begin to answer some of the questions that I think as a church are re- reverberating around us. So Man, I, I, if, if there's a question that, that's weighing heavily, think, man, I would love to talk about that. If, if it's something that even just in a one-on-one conversation, we want to seek the wisdom of the Bible to answer, great. But if it's something that I, I think kind of resonates deeply with the life of our church, we want to always be letting God's Word speak directly to that. And so one of the conversations that I have on a regular basis, and I won't make any eye contact because this is throughout the room more than you probably want to even admit, is about the will of God. That is God's plan. And the question that seems to resonate the most deeply with us and seems to emerge the most commonly is, what is God's will or plan for my life? Based on even the first question, is there a God and is there a plan? And so if you're here in this room and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, I'm really glad you're here. I want to kind of map out and give you a scope of the answer to what we believe that question is or the, the, the answer that, that we think the Bible gives to that question. And so I want to walk through for the next three weeks what it is that the Bible teaches us about the will of God. And I want to begin this kind of three-part series, hopefully rooting ourselves into maybe one of the more primary places in the Bible that sets the tone or at least gives us a cipher or a lens through which we can answer the question about a theme that reverberates through in the entirety of the Bible. And I think we find that in Psalm 119. And the way in which I want to begin to talk about it is this. So for the next uh, three weeks, I think we'll find that there's kind of a threefold plan of, of God's will. And today, specifically, I want to focus on the first one, namely that God's will is His Word. I think we'll also find that God reveals His will through godly counsel, which we'll talk about next week. And then we'll see that God reveals His will through His providence over all circumstances in the third week. And what I want us to see today that God's will is His Word. Ultimately, His will for us is for His glory, and His will for us is our joy. And I think we find the beginnings of this in Psalm 119, the longest of the Psalms devoted specifically to answering that first question about where God's will can be found, namely in His Word. So beginning in verse 1, here we go. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. You have commanded Your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping Your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all of Your commandments. I will praise You with an upright heart when I learn Your righteous rules. 
I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your, ser- your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. God has chosen to reveal His will through His Word. God has chosen to reveal His plan, His wishes, His wants through His Word. And so the first few things that I want you to begin to open your mind to the possibility of them being true before we dig through this psalm and then kind of see how it echoes throughout the entirety of Scripture are some truths that that I think we'll uncover specifically for the next few weeks is that God is not up there and out there keeping secrets from us, but He has chosen to reveal Himself to us. God is not a secret force that nebulously floats around in all of existence, but He has chosen so that for all time we would know that He is with us and for us to reveal Himself through Jesus Christ. 
And the plan that he has unfolded and confirmed to us in Jesus is a plan that begins in Genesis and, and ends in Revelation. A plan, a will, a character, a nature of himself that he has chosen not to hide from us, but to show to us and to demonstrate to us. And in all the ways in which the Bible reveals this to us, we find this amazing symphony of voices declaring who God is and what it is that He's doing. So the Bible is unlike any other religious text. It's unlike it. There are more genres packed into this Bible to the extent that we probably shouldn't call it a book, and we almost should call it a library. And instead, there are, there are song, we're, we're reading out of like the this, this songbook, the, the poems of the faith of God's people in the Old Testament. The poems and the truth as we sing it in God's community. But if you flip a few pages one way or the other, you'll find yourself in different kinds of books. Books, books of prophecy in which we'll see confirmed. Our, the next truth I think we find next week is that God reveals Himself through counsel and He sends a message through people. But if you go all the way back to the beginning, there's this narrative, this, this story that people have sat down and written out under the inspiration of God's own Spirit so that the things that God has done and the character that He's revealed to us might not be mysterious to us, but it might be revealed to us. All the way to the point where as we finished up this last week, the good news of God's climactic work in Jesus Christ is recorded to us with amazing historic accuracy across four different sources, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God reveals Himself. God demonstrates Himself to us. Stop there for just a moment and imagine the possibility of the good news wrapped up in that. That God actually speaks to us. That God actually wants us to know Him. That this book that's been the work of blood, sweat, and tears, sacrifice, and people who have actually died to get this book in your hands is a living, breathing thing in which God wants to use not just to fill your mind with information, but to fill your soul with His presence. It's this amazing thing. Unlike any other book, we, when we open it, actually meet the author. What a miraculous and amazing thing that we find happening. There's no other book like it where you open it up and go, oh, wow, I, I get face-to-face encounter with this. And so that's what we do on a regular basis. God reveals himself to us. But I want to point out something that might be a barrier or a hindrance to us understanding God's will in such a way. And that is our own duplicitous nature. So when God wants something, it happens. Right? When God wills something, it just takes place. So there are several truths I think we can see throughout the rest of the Bible, um, one of which we see in Psalm 135, that God does whatever God pleases. Like whenever God wants to do something, he does it. Like this, this is his choice, he does it, it happens. That's it. And that, in some sense, is difficult for us to understand. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. That's already difficult for, under, for us to understand because there's duplicitous nature to our encounter with reality. Namely, here is what we want and here's what we plan and here is what actually happens. Okay, so let me just give you a, a little demonstration from my own life. You, maybe you can relate to it. Um, when I was about uh, six years old, I had plans uh, to be an astronaut, okay? An astronaut. That was my plan. Um, when I was about eight years old, uh, my plan 
Um, well, some probably between six and eight. My plan was to be some sort of a superhero with superpowers, but that's really not worth mentioning. I didn't put a lot of energy into that. Uh, so when I was about eight years old, my plan at that point, for a brief period of time, was, was to be a firefighter. Like, just dress up like a fireman and, and just, like, spray water on stuff. Not cool. Mom doesn't like that when she's trying to grow flowers and, and like, have nice things, okay? Uh, when I was about 10, it kind of evolved to, I, I, I wanted to be some sort of a soldier, right? I didn't know. I mean, it was, I mean, by soldier, I meant, like, G.I. Joe, like, like, one with massive powers and laser guns and ray guns, that kind of thing. But, that, but I planned to be that when I grew up, and I kind of started thinking that way. About, about the age of 12, my plan was to be a, uh, uh, was to be a professional football player, right? That was, that, was, that was my plan. About the age of 14, my plan was to become a pilot. I started ground school uh, and started learning and flying with a guy, uh, wanted to be a pilot, come to find out that's really expensive, only rich people are pilots. Um, so that was a plan I had. About the time I, I was 17, um, I remember this. My plan was to become a professional baseball player. Okay, so I remember the day um, when that plan, I mean, it was coming to fruition. And I remember the day I had to call Chicago, White's, Chicago White Sox uh, scout John Kazanis and say that that plan had fallen apart. And then my plan, through education, studied a whole bunch of different languages and all sorts of stuff, I was going to get a PhD and be a seminary or college professor. And I... Spent several years of my life devoted to that, all right? And now, here, did you get that? There's just a few of my plans, and here we are in South Dakota in an elementary school on a Sunday morning. Now, I don't know about you, but like maybe you saw all this coming. Maybe like 10 years ago, you were like, absolutely, uh, Rosa Parks, absolutely, East Side of Sioux Falls, of course, we're going to be a part of a church. It's going to be in a school. Yeah, maybe you saw that coming. If that's the case, come talk to me. I would, love to, I would just love to pick your brain and hear your insight. Um, but but it, I don't know about you, but on this side of, of, of this imaginary line between you and I, I didn't see any of this coming. In fact, I had a lot of other plans, and almost every single one of them, piece by piece, fell apart. And almost every time it happened, it was devastating. And almost every single time that the plans changed, my sense of identity was thrown for a loop. Been there? Okay, maybe this is exactly where you meant to be. Maybe this is exactly the time and place, and right now you're like, of course, I dreamt this is going to happen. Even the words out of your mouth, it's like deja vu all over again, right? Maybe, maybe that's you. But I think for the most part, many people don't see it that way, and the plans that we have often fall apart. In fact, when the plans fall apart, they can be deeply devastating. They can be painful and heartbreaking. And our sense of identity becomes detached every time the plan changes. Changes. So I want you to see that that is a hindrance to understanding the will of God because God doesn't operate that way. Like God has never had a plan that failed. God has never had an idea that doesn't come to fruition. In fact, the minute he wills it, the minute he thinks it, is the minute that already it comes to pass. And this is a hindrance for us to understand that when God wills something, it actually comes to pass. It actually happens. In fact, there's an amazing and miraculous story throughout the entirety of the Bible that despite all of the obstacles, all of the things that seek to destroy God's plan, it still happens anyway. Habakkuk chapter 1 says that it hastens toward the goal. It doesn't slow down. It's getting faster. Getting closer and closer to God's original plan. The second obstacle, I think, for us to understand God's will, being specifically His Word, not only that he reveals something to us, not only that his plans actually happen unlike ours, but he is not duplicitous like us. 
Our ways are not like His. Our ways are different than His, and the way that He communicates to us is radically different because His nature is integrated and fully held together by His perfection, His holiness, and His own justice and righteousness. We are not that way. We are deeply divided. Internally, we are confused about who we are. And God is not this. Let me illustrate this to you, okay? There's this new phrase. Uh, I, I mean, there's lots of ways I think I can show you how divided we are, how our plans don't happen, but also even how what we believe inside is different than what actually comes out. There's this, uh, there's this new phrase. Um, have you heard this phrase? It's called, I'm just saying. Heard this? I'm just saying. Anyone caught this? I'm just saying. So, I'm just saying is a thing you add to something. After you've been rude and discourteous and disrespectful, uh, and you still want to believe that you're not rude and discourteous and disrespectful, you tag on this little thing to kind of retract your statement, but at the same time deceiving yourself into believing you're not a bad person. Heard this? Like, I think you're terrible at this. What? I'm offended. And then once you see that happens, you go like, well, I don't want to take it back, but I also don't really want to be honest and courageous in what I believe. So I'll just go, hey, I'm just saying. I'm just saying, like, this is this, right? And in our own head, we, we create this duplicitous sense of self. You ever heard this? Beware. Anytime I or anyone else says, I'm just saying, beware. There's no, you have no idea what they're saying. Right? There's, there's no way to know. And so we try to qualify it. You ever caught, you've been in this conversation? Well, what I meant was, what I meant was, and then we're in this, like, cycle, this downward pit that ends in, like, at the end, we're, we're offended, we don't know what's going on, but we don't really know clearly uh, and, and co- cohesively why it is that we feel this way or what it is that's been communicated because we are duplicitous in our very nature. And the minute what we think or say or feel is challenged, we will find a way, instead of like pulling back, we'll just kind of create a duplicitous self. Hey, you're dressed terribly today. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. As if to somehow back down from the rudeness and coldness of the things that we really feel inside by saying something that, that in, in, a, in, a, in essence, kind of segrega- segregates and disintegrates what we really feel, what we really mean, what we really believe, and then who we really are in reality. You see this in yourself? We talked about this over the last few weeks. We always kind of put it like, we are, we are like self-deceived. The capacity for self-deception here is just monumental. We'll say things like, no offense, as it so it like kind of convinces us that we're not being offensive and then we'll say the worst thing ever. Heard that? I don't mean to be rude, but whoa, beware. Someone says, I don't mean to be rude. They're about to be rude, but they're not even going to feel bad about it because they've convinced themselves that they don't mean to, so therefore they're not. You get it? Have you, have you been part of this? Like, I, this comes out of my mouth. Have you ever heard these, these qualifiers? Let's be honest. What do you mean, let's be honest? What were we being? <laughs> right? Listen, I just, you know, I want to be straight up with you. Like, what, what, what were you being, right? I'm not going to lie, but, and then we say something. What, what were you, were you lying? Do you catch it? Like, even in the way that we communicate, our duplicitous self is oozing out of us. Be careful. That is a devastating, a difficult, and destructive obstacle to understanding God's nature as he communicates to us. God, when he speaks, does not qualify his statements. He does not change his mind. He is not untruthful or deceptive. He is clear. So when we think about God's nature in such a way, we're in a tough spot where we don't really know what to think. 
One of the last things I think is we're, we're kind of qualified by our own conditioning. We're, 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 like, we're, we're fixated to different kinds of sensibilities or personality types. And this is also, I think, one of the most important hindrances that we see. And this is good news. Like, I don't know if you got this, but like God is not hindered with the same kinds of fixations that we have. In short, God is integrated in Himself. He is holy and just and perfect in Himself so that He doesn't mince words when He speaks to us. So here's this is going to sting for just a minute. And this is a hindrance for both of us, regardless of where you are on the spectrum. But God is not an introvert like you that leaves everyone wondering what they're really thinking. Right? God is not an introvert like you that you're just kind of quietly deceiving everyone by not talking. God's not that way. He doesn't hide. He's not afraid of what's going to happen when he speaks because in and of himself, he is truthful. He doesn't share your fear. But here's the other side. God is not an extrovert, so he doesn't have to apologize from some nonsense that he said that he shouldn't have. You feel that? On one side of the spectrum or other, do you sense how often our own personality types and our own fixations tend towards something where truthfulness is something that, and integration is something that's foreign to us? Not so with God. He reveals himself consistently. What he wills, he does. And when he reveals his will to us, it is something that gives us access to his will for our lives. So let's define some of the key terms that we saw in what we just read. I don't know if you caught it, but there's this this repetitive kind of theme in which the statutes, precepts, ways, rules, laws, all of these things of God that, that are kind of synonymous with God's plan and His will are the ways in which we get access to who He is, and there's something that we ought to desire. This is easy for us to understand, right? If I, if I command you to mow my lawn, it would be easy for you to deduce that my will is for the lawn to be mowed, right? So if I was like, hey, mow my lawn... You could kind of deduce by my commands, by the things that I request, by the things that I want to happen, that that's my will. Secondarily speaking, this is the beauty that the story lands in, is that if I I saw you not doing that thing that I commanded you to do, and then I just did it myself, when I saw that you weren't going to accomplish it, so I stepped in to mow my own lawn and do it myself, then then there's kind of this reinforcement of my will. Wow, he really wanted the lawn mowed. The same thing is true about the commands and decrees and statutes of God that we see alluded to, and not only in the first 40 verses of Psalm 119, but throughout its entirety. Each stanza here contains eight verses, and there's 22 parts of this entire book, labeled, started with, the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Fewer letters in the Hebrew alphabet because they don't have vowels like we have vowels. Their vowels are typically like punctuated marks for pronunciation of different words mostly just consonants make up the hebrew alphabet so so if you notice that strange word aleph at the very beginning right before verse one and in between verse eight and nine beth so aleph bet so in greek that comes alpha beta alphabet our alphabet get it so here we go this is this is not something that should be foreign to should be foreign to us aleph bet gimel dalit hevad yeah, it, it goes on and on and on. Zion, yeah, I mean, I want to recite the entire, I'll, I'll spit on you, and all, all sorts of guttural, guttural consonants come in the middle of the Hebrew alpha, alphabet that I'll save you from. But you should see, this is, this is like an acrostic so that you would remember these kinds of things. Every single stanza begins with a new letter of the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, such that it would be something you'd remember and something that you would begin to understand. So that you would commit this 
to the innermost parts of your own thoughts. And the terms that are used synonymously, I want to define. So one is way. Did you catch that? Like your way or my way, guide my way. When he says the word way, he's thinking more not in just terms of a path, but a course of life, a way in which you live. When it says way, it's talking about a broad and existential course of life. Law, whenever we talk about law, it's comes from a root word that simply means to teach. So it's not just something that's dictated and expected to be upheld, but that law is actually meant to be something that teaches us. You are taught rules so that you will learn how things work. And you'll see the word testimonies. The word of God is synonymously called a testimony here because in it, God is testifying to truth. You also see the word precepts. These are the directions which relate to special kinds of conduct. It's a word that denotes an inspection. After looking closely, the precepts emerge. Then you'll see another phrase, not only our way, but his way. And this is the course that he reveals is right. The course of life that he denotes that is perfect and righteous. And you'll see the word statutes. The word statutes are ordinances or laws that have a permanent nature to them. The words law and statute, they both kind of originally denote like a, 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 pas, a positive form of moral law. And then you see the word commandments. This simply means institutions or traditions, things that ought to be upheld. This term is it's comprehensive. It's throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. But it seems to denote a fundamental direction for conduct both in what things, the things that you ought to be pursuing and going toward and the things that you ought to be avoiding. And then last one, the word that we see used over and over again is the word judgments. This is meant to kind of connote the rules of conduct that God has set out. He is, it's, it's kind of implying that he has made these righteous judgments and judicial decisions over things, and the result is his judgment. Hence, there's this wide sense of the entirety of the world that ought to operate according to this chapter. So all of these words are interchangeable. In fact, they're used multiple times. Did you catch it? And they all seem to mean synonymously God willing something, God speaking something, God desiring something, God commanding something by testimony, by His way, by precept, by statute, by commandment, and by judgment. And this is where we see the connection between God's will and His plan that's runs throughout the entirety of the Bible and our plan that God now reveals as His will for us. And His will is revealed through His Word. He speaks it, not duplicitously, but He speaks it faithfully and helpfully. He speaks it in such a way that gives life. Did you catch all the benefits? I mean, just skim through those with me. Like, if you find yourself thinking, hey, I would want one of these things in in my life, just, just kind of look where, where it goes. Well, okay, do you want a blameless way? Well, you find it in the law of the Lord. Um, do, do you want blessing? Well, you find it in, in the testimony, in the testimonies of God, right? Do you want to stop doing wrong things? Uh, you, find, you find this by following his ways, right? Do you want diligence, steadfastness? Do you want no shame? Well, you fix your eyes on his commandments. Do you want an upright heart? Or, I mean, you ask yourself, do you want a depressed and broken heart or do you want a, an upright and integrated heart? Well, then you do this by knowing God's righteous rules. And I'm just eight verses in, right? Do you want, do you want a pure way? Do you, want, uh, do you want to be free from awful things? Do you want to have a heart that knows the Lord? Do you want blessing that comes out of your lips? Do you want to, do you want to have meditations that bring life? Do you want delight? You do these through His Word, through His precepts, through His statutes. 
through his commandments. Do you want to be dealt with bountifully by God? And you live according to his word. Do you want to be a sojourner that's not lost and wandering? And you do so according to God's commands. Even though people are plotting against you, you are preserved and held up by God. How do you do this? By meditating on his statutes. Do you want to be in the dust or do you want to have life? Well, then you find life according to God's word. Do you want to understand mysteries or do you want to be confused? Because if you want, to under, if you want understanding, you find them in God's precepts. Do you want your soul to melt or do you want it to be held together and strengthened? Then you, it is strengthened by His words. Do you want to be marked by falsehood or do you want to live according to truth? Do you want to be chosen before God? Do you want to cling to good things? Do you want to run in the way of God's goodness such that your heart is enlarged? And you do so according to His commandments. You get it? Like the benefits, the good things that you and I, when we wake up in the morning, expect or feel entitled to, things that would, at least in the, in, the, in the privacy of our own lives, we would admit we want to have them. We want joy. We want delight. We want truthfulness. We want to have an upright heart. We don't want to be depressed. We don't want to be in the dust. We don't want to be downtrodden. We don't want to be under reproach. All of these things, over and over and over again, the psalmist tells us we find according to God's Word. The good things that God gives to us, the gifts that He pours on us, are things that He gives to us through His Word. He does not hide Himself from us, but instead He seeks us out, reveals Himself to us, such that we talk about the will of God now as God's plan and His purpose, His good ideas, His good intentions for every single individual. And this is good because God does whatever He pleases. So here's what I think you can find. We'll kind of walk through some of these truths that I think are unfolding in a, a couple different places. The people who find maturity in Christ are able to do God's will consistently. Out of Colossians, you remember this in our time in Colossians. Uh, at the very end, uh, uh, Paul is kind of giving a closing word. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you. And he is struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Why? So that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. So this one is, who is fully mature is now able somehow, when they stand mature, to be assured that they are walking and living in the will of God. Secondly, we see that God's will is always good, it's always acceptable, and it's always perfect. Romans 12, 2 says that do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may then discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How, it, how is it that we are, how, how is it that we are know, to know God's will? How is it that we are to, to affirm it and test it? We do it by the renewing of our minds through the transformation that Christ gives us good and acceptable it's perfect just getting started doing god's will also will sustain us because we see that it sustained jesus for life jesus says in john 4 34 my food that is my sustenance my ability to exist right my ability to to keep going my food the thing that keeps me running is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work the way that he is sustained, the way that he is held up is ultimately something 
that is done by following God's will. Sometimes, however, the will of God leads to suffering. That you wouldn't be deceived, I think, by what most people think God's plan is for your life. It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So it could be that God's will for your life is to do good and endure suffering versus walking, wandering like Psalm 119 told us, and experiencing evil. Christians are to strive to know the will of God because not only does sometimes suffering happen in the will of God, it's in fact exactly what happened to Jesus. Not by accident, but by divine will and plan. Isaiah 53, the prophet tells us, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That is the anointed Messiah. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Did you catch that? The will of God will prosper even amidst suffering. Christians are to strive to know the will of God for their own lives. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me upon level ground. Christians are also to discern the will of God through prayer. Colossians 1 tells us that from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. What is it that Paul and and these other apostles were praying for the people? We've prayed for you, asking God that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Not only should Christians pray for this, but Jesus counted all of these things as blessings. We are to pray for the will of God's will to even be done in the world. And Jesus taught us to do this in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6. We say, your kingdom come, your will be done right here in our lives, on the earth, in this created order, just like it is in the perfect, just, and righteous space of heaven. Jesus counted those who did God's will as his own family members. Matthew 12 says it this way, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We saw this in the Gospel of Mark. His family came to talk to him. And what did he say? He said, look, he said, man, these people aren't my family, kind of forsaking his own beloved and those who were close to him. And they said, well, that's crazy, Jesus. You must have lost your mind. And he says, no, no, no. If you want to be my family, the people who are a part of my family are the ones who do my Father's work. And lastly, just like Jesus to live forever. First John says that, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Did you see the connection between God's will for the world and God's will for our lives? Did you see the theme from the statutes, commands, and things that we are called to do in Psalm 119 that show up for the rest of the entirety of the book of the Bible? That His will is revealed to us It is made clear to us, and it is something we ought to desire. It is great benefit to us. For God's will is His Word. So where are we going to land this? Let me bring this down, I think, to a couple of questions that I think might be helpful for us to think about. And the reason this is a good question to ask. So here's, here's the question. What path are you currently following? And maybe one of the better ways to qualify that question is to ask, whose path is it? Like, whose path are you currently walking? Whose approval are you trying to gain? Are you subconsciously trying to do something that will win the approval of your parents? Are you walking in their footsteps, trying to be and act and do just like them so that they'll love you more? 
Whose approval are you trying to gain? What kind of success are you trying to gain by the path that you are currently walking? Who told you to do it? Was it because of something you saw in a movie? Was it because of something you saw, something you read in a book, something you saw on television? Is it because of an image that was portrayed for you in some sort of advertising? Was it somebody who impacted you greatly and you emulate them and you want to be like them? Whose path are you currently walking? Who do you want to be like? Who do you want to impress? Whose idea is it that you walk this path? Who defines success for you on this path? And the most important question that we see as we see the theme of God's will for our lives throughout the entirety of the Bible, you ask this question, is what you are seeking going to bring God greater glory or is it bringing you better glory? Is the path you are currently walking going to make much of who God is and His infinite and perfect character? Or is the path that you are currently walking going to lead with a a pat on the back and congratulations from your peers? Is the path that you're currently walking going to bring people into the knowledge of God's will in Jesus Christ? Or is the path you're walking going to lead to more comfort? Are you working really hard this week so that God would be glorified, so that all that you do and all that your hands find to do are done to and as to the Lord? Or is what you're doing this week working really hard so that you can really blow off steam come Friday, 5 o'clock? Are you working really hard for the rest that comes at the end? Or are you working really hard for some sort of glory that God receives? What path are you walking? Who told you to do it? And why are you doing it? Because it seems that the delight that comes, the joy that comes, the fullness of heart. I love that in verse 32 of Psalm 119. Did you catch that? Like, that your heart would be enlarged. Is your heart small? How much sympathy and patience do you have for the people around you? The enlargement of heart, the joy and delight that comes, comes through God's will for our lives. Thank God that He is not up there and out there and kept secrets from us, but He is providing for us His will in a visible and powerful way through His book. So here's where this rubber, I think, meets the road. When we ask those questions of who we're glorifying, what it is that we're doing, what path that we're walking, I think what we'll find is that some of the answers to our questions we can find in the character that is developed by living according to His Word. Notice that of the 40 verses that we just read, There was very little specifics about decisions that were made. There were very few specifics about location or geography. There was no reference to position. There was only reference to a sense of character and integration of walking in God's path. So here's how I can summarize this for you. God's will for you is not a place or a thing or an act. God's will for you is a person. God's will is to make you like God. Christ to being conformed to him day by day which means that the deepest and most powerful questions that we ask can only be answered in the slow and powerful and transformative work of God's good news pouring into and over our lives don't miss this there is no easy shortcut for God's will in your life And if that's what you're hungry for, if that's what you're looking for, then friend, you are not seeking His glory in your transformation. You are looking for magic. 
you are looking for a pagan form of divination that puts God in your debt. If I do this thing, then God must do this. And in this picture, you are now God. The difference between faith and adherence and adoration to God who is above us and superstition is that the placement of power is on Him and not on us. You see this in most pagan rituals, right? Think about, what, think about a lucky rabbit's foot. Like, think about if that had any real power, right? So, like, I don't know what you, I don't ever had one. You rub it or, like, you carry it. I don't know, maybe you do, maybe you kiss it. I don't know what you do with it. I don't ever had one. Um, so, like, I gave up all my forms of paganism when I stopped playing baseball, right? Hey, wash your clothes, all right? Your dirty socks aren't making you do better, right? So you take out the rabbit's foot or whatever, you kiss it or rub it, whatever you do. Think about like if that was true. That, that would say that the, the powerful and mighty will of God is like waiting and resting on like your ability to rub a dead rabbit's foot. And this is what you're saying. You're saying, God, your mighty and magnificent power and will is subject now to my thumb rubbing on this dead rabbit's foot. Think of what you just said. You've said now that the power in your thumb is actually greater than the power of God. And you're implying that what you are doing now has put God in your debt. And now He owes you something. Think how silly and superstitious this is, right? Like that God's like, oh, whoa, you rubbed the, you rubbed the, oh, you rubbed the foot. I, I, better, I better do what you say now. Think of how demeaning and how small that makes God. And you'll say, well, that's silly. I don't have a rabbit's foot. No, but the next time something fails, how entitled and broken do you feel? How quickly do you run and go, God, why didn't you give me the thing that I deserved? Friend, you might as well have rubbed the rabbit's foot and expected God to owe you then. Because in that relationship, you are God and God is subject to you. But the Bible makes it clear, and I think all of creation testifies that something else is in control. So friend, our will in God's plan is subject to Him. And it is to shape us and to form us, not to simply get us through superstitious little decisions that we have to make. Here's how I've, 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 I've kind of translated to some of you, right? God, God's will, did you catch that? Was to be in His statutes, to be in His commands, to be shaped in the image of His Son, to be redeemed and drawn back to Him by Jesus Christ. This is the perfect and awesome will of God, right? You're going to delight and abide in Him forever and some of you come and you ask questions like well i got a job offer one in minneapolis one in omaha i don't know where i should move i should ask god what he thinks friend be careful here here's a here's an axiom that i'm kind of learning and and this isn't in the bible but man i think it's confirmed there and i think i can defend it but this is what i would ask if the questions you're asking about your life can't be answered in the bible i want to challenge you it's probably because your questions are too small like if the questions you are asking aren't specifically answered in the Bible, you're probably asking questions that are too small. Should I marry this girl? Well, I'll tell you what the Bible tells you. It doesn't say pick a girl. It says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. You got one? Great. You find a good thing. Okay? Ephesians 5 says lay down your life like Jesus did for the church for your wife. Okay. So if you marry this girl or marry this girl, guess what you're supposed to do? Lay down your life like Christ did for the church, for your wife. What if I marry this one? Lay down your life. What if I marry this one? Lay down your life. But I made a mistake. I, made a, I married a bad one. Okay, lay down your life. You get it? You, you get the picture? So if what you're asking isn't specifically answered in the Bible, I would push back on you. You're probably asking a question that's too small. You realize God can be glorified in any and all circumstances? What job should I take? 
Well, Bible tells me that whatever your hands find to do, you should do as unto the Lord for his glory, right? Whether you eat, whether you drink, do all for the glory of God. All right, well, should I take this job in Omaha or should I take this job in Minneapolis? Friend, let me warn you. If you don't care to glorify God by all that you do, God does not care where you choose to do it. God has no plan for your, for your disobedience. That's not in there. And so if you want to be disobedient in Minneapolis or disobedient in Omaha or disobedient in Sioux Falls, God doesn't care. God cares that all that you do glorify Him and promote the good news of His saving will. And if you're going to do that in Sioux Falls, guess what? God will do His will through you. You want to do that in Omaha? Do that. God's will is bigger. His glory is greater, and therefore the joy that we receive in His will is infinitely more valuable. Imagine a God who's looking down at you right now with the decisions that you're weighing. Right now, some of you, you have these big decisions. I know, you're like, what do I do? How do I do this? Imagine a God who like, has sustained and upheld his will by his word confirmed in Jesus Christ, but it's all going to come crashing down if you make the wrong choice. Right? God's up there and he's like, I created the world, brought it into existence, breathed life into nothingness. Out of nothing, I created this beautiful thing. But you, when you take that wrong jog in the wrong city, boy, you messed it all up. Who's God in that picture? Who's in control in that narrative? Friend, God's will is bigger. His joy is much more powerful. And the gladness that comes from knowing that his will is going to be done is much more beautiful than weighing the entirety of the world on the next choice you make if you want a shortcut you won't find it but if you want to be transformed by god then he will do it slowly and powerfully whatever you do wherever you go do, do you feel do, i hope you did you feel the weight leave your shoulders do you feel that maybe weight just oh oh you mean god's going to do his thing you mean god does whatever he pleases and I'm not going to mess it up? You feel the weight that's lifted off your shoulders? You don't have to carry this. You don't have to do this. You simply have to obey the good thing that he has done for us. So reject all of the cheap alternatives. You heard someone say like, well, God wants me to be rich. Really? He told the rich young ruler that he should give everything, otherwise he can't follow Jesus. Well, God wants me to have a full bank account. Really? He told his disciples that before they went out, they shouldn't even have any more than one extra cloak. God wants to use me to point out other people's flaws. Really? Jesus was kind of mean to the Pharisees for doing just that. And he said, be careful. You're pointing out the speck in other people's eyes when you have a log sticking out of yours. God's will is for me. Fill in the blank. If it isn't confirmed in the infinite majesty and infinite character and righteousness of God revealed to us through the Bible, then beware. Beware. It's probably your will and not God's. I landed on this, and we'll go to John chapter 1, and we'll see how God's word ultimately is a word that's good for us. Um, I had a man came to me one time. This was years ago, and I, I didn't know what to do at the time. I don't know if you do this well. Like you, have a, you have a situation that you relive and then just don't know what to say, but then like wish you could have thought it out better and said. I, I don't know if I, maybe you say exactly what you mean to say right in that moment. I typically don't. I go, oh, man, I should have said this, this, and this. Right. So this guy, he goes, hey, man, I just really, um, he was married to this girl at this time, and he said, you know, I just think, uh, I think, you know, my, my wife is being very unloving and uncaring, and I think that God's calling me to maybe to leave this relationship because I'm just, I don't think God wants me to be as miserable as I am in this marriage. And I was like, 
At the time, I thought, that's wrong, but I don't know why. There's something going on there. And here's what I would say. There's at least four things wrong. Four things wrong with what he was saying, okay? Right? At least four. And I'll just give you a few. Uh, first and foremost, we, we, we talked about this. Like, so, so God's will is for your character, not for your happiness. I don't know if you noticed this. Like, like the perfect is spotless and sinless son of God. It was actually God's pleasure to crush him for your sake. So if the perfect and spotless sinless son of God was meant for suffering for some, for some great thing. I could be wrong, but maybe suffering's coming your way too, right? If the perfect and sinless Son of God endured suffering to complete God's will, I'm, I just push back, maybe God's will isn't for you to be happy and, and without suffering. Maybe God means to shape you more than he means to make you happy. The second thing, I don't know, I mean, lay down your life for your wife. He was completely disobeying this. Very, very first two chapters of the Bible tell us that like, hey, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, they shall become one flesh. And he was like, no, I feel like God's calling me out of this. So here, like the last and most awful thing, even though the other things were just kind of defied God's word, he was actually defaming God by saying that God was the one who told him. I remember this because I regularly hear people use God's word and say that God is calling them to do something that's deeply inconsistent with his revealed will. So friend, the extent to which you will understand this book might be the extent to which you understand God's will for your life. We store his word in our heart, verse 11 says, so that we might not sin against him. It's a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. How dare we begin to tell people that we know something as though we are God. So let's land on John chapter 1. If you marked your spot, run there. We're going to end in John chapter 1. God reveals himself through his word. And I want you to end in this good news. In the beginning, John 1, verse 1, was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He, we were talking about a word, weren't we? Now we're talking about a person. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him was not anything that made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Friend, hear the good news. God reveals his will through his word, and his word to you is Jesus. His word to you is not a word of crushing. It is not a word of judgment. It is not a word of shame. It is a word of reconciliation. And God's greatest will for your life and mine is that we would know him. We would know the power and the work of Jesus made manifest. The incarnate word of God made visible for us so that for all times we would know that God will, God's will is for us and not against us. God's plan is for our eternal joy and to delight in him, not for eternal separation and damnation. God's will for us is to see and behold the glory of God as it covers the earth like waters cover the ocean, according to Habakkuk. God's will for your life and for me is to enjoy like heirs into the adoption and inheritance that will be for us forever and ever. Friends, God will, God's will is his word, and his word to you and his word to me is a word of good news. It's a word of care, a word of reconciliation. You can trust him, and in Jesus' name, you can take him at his word. Let's pray. God, in these moments, uh, you have, you've given us a hard word, uh, given us 
a complicated word. I pray that even in these moments we would be compelled to trust you. We would be compelled to know you. If there's some in this room right now that the thought of reading a book and reading the stories of a God interacting with people just seems ridiculous, would you even now begin to open their eyes to the possibility that you are you're even kinder than when he imagined? That you do not want to keep secrets from us. You did not send Jesus to some far corner of the earth to live in obscurity, but instead you sent him to the center of the known world so that this good news of your work in him would be known by the nations. If there's someone in this room right now and they're just confused about the next few steps, uh, if they find themselves wondering uh, what it is that they're to do next, God, we're Maybe we're in despair because we feel like we've done some awful things that have gotten us out of your will. Would you right now just rejuvenate us, renew us, and give us a sense of delight that your will is much bigger than anything that we could possibly destroy? Your will is much greater than could ever fit into this lifetime. Your will is much more merciful than than our own disintegrated selves give you credit for. For the person in this room right now, they just want to know your will and they want to know the safety and security that comes from being in your hands. Would you right now give them a sense of of peace, a sense of comfort that you will not leave them in mystery, you will not leave them in desolation, but your will is to restore them? Grant us now the gift of faith and trust that we would look to you and see that our greatest plan, our greatest achievement, our greatest accomplishment is actually something that you've done for us. And the burden that we now carry, you mean to take from us. So for those in this room, we we wonder what your next thing in our life might be. We wonder where your will might lead us. Would you begin to resonate with us deeply and and help us to realize that you are drawing us into something that you are doing. You are leading the way in Jesus Christ and that to follow in his footsteps is to be in the will of God. And to do the work of God is to know and to be in the family of God by Jesus Christ. May we be open and receptive as you draw us near. May we trust faithfully. May we, gr- may we receive this gift with gratitude in Jesus' name. Amen.